And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hodno. This is the Ken Hodno Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Can't wait to the Old West in the most haunted city in the country. Well, today is May 4th, 124th day of the year. 241 days remain till the year's over with. And it's also my birthday. Well, you all wanted holidays observances, so here they are. Anti-Bullying Day, Bird Day, Dave Brubeck Day, he's a jazz pianist and composer, Intergalactic Star Wars Day, International Firefighters Day, International Respect for Chickens Day. I don't know about you, personally I think that's a foul day to be celebrating. KIND Day, uh, KIND apparently sp- uh, stands for Kids in Need of Diapers, Kent State Shooting Remembrance Day, Make a Book Day, uh, National Family Reading Week, don't you know, National uh, Candied Orange Peel Day, National Day of Prayer, National Day of Reason, uh, National Kids Fitness Day, National Orange Juice Day, National Weather Observers Day, uh, Peace at Shinny, Petite and Proud Day, Renewal Day, Rhode Island Independence Day. When do we throw them out? Star Wars Day, World Give Day, and World Password Day. It's also Air Quality Awareness Week, Choose Privacy Week, Go Diaper Free Week. All those over 70 don't go diaper free if you have to wear them. National Auctioneers Day, National Physical Education and Sports Week. National Safety Stand Down Week, National Small Business Week, National Sun Safety Week, Preservation Week, Screen Free Week, uh, Stewardship uh, Week, and World Dystonia Awareness Week. Well, <clears throat> on that note, In 1256, the Augustinian monastic orders constituted at the Vesello Monastery of Papa Alexander IV issues a papal bull, the set Ecclesiae Catholicae. 1415, religious reformers John Wycroft and Jan Hus are condemned as heretics at the Council of Constance. 1436, assassination of the Swedish rebel who later became a national hero. Engelbrecht, Engelbrechtstam. 1471, War of the Roses. Battle of Tewkesbury took place on this date. Edward IV, my ancestor, defeats the Lancastrian army and kills Edward of Westminster, who was Prince of Wales. 1493, Pope Alexander VI divides the new world between Spain and Portugal along the line of demarcation. God wanted it that way. 1626, Dutch explorer Peter Minuet arrives in New Netherland, present-day Manhattan Island, don't you know, aboard the, the Sea Mule. 1686, the municipality of Lagan is founded in the Philippines. 1776, Rhode Island becomes the first American colony to renounce allegiance to King George III. They were safe because he couldn't even find it on a map. 1799, Fourth Anglo-Mysore War, the Battle of Seringapatam, 
besieger Sergapa demands when the city's invaded and the, the Tipu Sultan killed of a besieging British army under the command of General George Harris. 1814, Emperor Napoleon arrives in Porto Ferreo on the island of Elba to begin his exile. 1814, also saw King Ferdinand VII abolish the Spanish Constitution of 1812, returning Spain to absolutism. 1836, formation of ancient order of Hibernians. The, um, for those who are not familiar with that group, members have to be male. It's an Irish Catholic fraternal order. Members have to be male, Catholic, and either born in Ireland or of Irish descent. The largest membership is now in the U.S. when it was founded in New York City in 1836. Uh, but a reference to its existence as early as 1819 was found in a letter written from Samuel Caswell to the eventual 7th President of the U.S., Andrew Jackson. In the letter, Jackson was nominated for membership in the Caswell's Hibernian Society. Well... 1859, the Cornwall Railway opens across the Royal Albert Bridge, linking Devon and Cornwall in England. 1869, the Naval Battle of Hakodate is fought in Japan. 1871, the National Association, that was the first professional baseball league, opens its first season in Fort Wayne, Indiana. 1886, the Haymarket Affair in Chicago. A homemade bomb is thrown at police officers trying to break up a labor rally. Killed one officer. The ensuing gunfire led to the deaths of a further seven officers and four civilians. Apparently, uh, they weren't really sure who to shoot. 1904, U.S. begins construction of the Panama Canal. And if you've never been there, it's a fascinating place. When I went in 1975, got there... Uh, the day before uh, Turkey Day, it was like stepping back into the 1950s. Uh, 1910, Royal Canadian Navy is created. 1912, Italy occupies the Ottoman Islands of Rhodes. 1919, May 4th Movement, student demonstrations take place in Tiananmen Square in Beijing, protesting the Treaty of Versailles that transferred Chinese territory to Japan. 1926, the UK general strike begins. This day in 1927, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences is incorporated. 1932, in Atlanta, Mobster Al Capone began serving an 11-year prison sentence for tax evasion. Couldn't get him for crimes. They got him for taxes. And nobody understands the tax code. Uh, 1942, the Battle of the Coral Sea begins with an attack by aircraft from U.S. aircraft carrier Yorktown on Japanese naval forces at Tulagi Island in the Solomons. Chinese forces invaded Tulagi the day before, May 3rd. 1945. New Ngami concentration camp near Hamburg is liberated by the British Army. Also on this date, 1945, the German surrender at Lundberg Heath is signed, coming into effect the next day. It encompasses all Wehrmacht units in the Netherlands, Denmark, and northwest Germany. 1946, in San Francisco Bay, Marines from the 
Treasure Island Naval Base stopped a two-day riot at Alcatraz Federal Penitentiary. Five people were killed in the riot. 1949, the entire Torino football team, except for two players, didn't take the trip. Uh, Suro Otoma, due to an injury in Renato Gandolfi because of a coach request, they're killed in a plane crash, all except those two. 1953, Ernest Hemingway wins the Pulitzer Prize for Old Man in the Sea. 1959, the first annual Grammy Awards are held. 1961, American Civil Rights Movement, the Freedom Riders, begin a bus trip through the South. Also in 61, Malcolm Ross and Victor Prather attain a new altitude record for man balloon flight, ascending to the, in the Stratolab 5 open gondola to uh, 113,740 feet. 1970, Vietnam War, Kent State shootings. Oh, hi, guard who was sent to Kent State University after disturbances in the city of Kent the weekend before, opened fire, killing four unarmed students and wounding nine others. The students were protesting the Cambodian campaign of the U.S. and South Vietnam. If they didn't like it, they should have gone. 1972, Don't Make a Wave Committee, a fledgling environmental organization founded in Canada in 71, officially changes its name to Greenpeace Foundation. 1973, 108-story Sears Tower in Chicago was topped out at uh, 1,451 feet as the world's tallest building. 1978, South African Defense Force attacks a Swapo base at Kasinga in southern Angola, killing about 600 people. 1979, Margaret Thatcher becomes the first female prime minister of the U.K., So on this date, 1982, 20 sailors are killed and a British Type 42 destroyer HMS Sheffield is hit by an Argentinian Exocet missile during the Falklands War. This day in 1988, the Pepcon disaster rocks Henderson, Nevada as tons of space shuttle fuel detonate during a fire. The, um, the Pepcon plant is where all this took place. Pacific Engineering and Production Company in Nevada. There were two fatalities, 372 injuries, and an estimated $100 million in damages. Large portion of the Las Vegas Valley within a 10-mile radius of the plant was affected, and several agencies activated disaster plans. In 1989, the Rancontra Affair. From White House aide Oliver North is convicted of three crimes and acquitted of nine other charges. Convictions are later overturned on appeal. I knew him at Fort Benning. 1990, Latvia declares independence from the Soviet Union. 1994, Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin and PLO leader Yasser Arafat signed a peace accord granting self-rule to the Gaza Strip in Jericho. 1998, a federal judge in Sacramento, California, gives Unabomber Theodore Kaczynski four life sentences plus 30 years after Kaczynski accepts a plea agreement sparing him from the death penalty. 2000, Ken Livingston becomes the first mayor of London. Well, that's an office separate from that of the Lord Mayor of London. 2002, 103 people are killed and 51 are injured in a plane crash near Malamino Kano International Airport in Kano, Nigeria.
2007, Greensburg, Kansas is almost completely destroyed by a 1.7 mile wide EF5 tornado. First ever tornado to be rated as such with the new enhanced Fujita scale. 2014, three people are killed and 62 injured in a pair of bombings on buses in Nairobi, Kenya. 2019, the inaugural all-female motorsports series, the W Series, takes place at uh, Hakenhemring. Race was run by Jamie Chadwick, who will become the inaugural season's champion. Well, we have uh, finished our little history segment. You know, I had somebody ask me the other day if, in fact, uh, the UFO uh, mystery, if you will, began in uh, at Roswell. Because it was after that that Kenneth Arnold saw the, the disc flying over Mount Rainier. And the answer to that is no. Um... I've got a uh, clipping from Saturday, May 15th, 1869. Uh, Virginia City, Nevada. That's about 20 miles southeast of uh, Reno. It was a small mining community. Now, this highly unusual UFO sighting was probably seen by only two people in the entire town. It had 7,000 inhabitants. It was witnessed by the individual who reported it. And a man identified as Mr. Hayden, doorkeeper at Pike's Opera House. And what the two men saw was so frightening that the narrator of the story later told a local newspaper he thought the end of the world had come. In the western sky, these two men noticed a large ball of fire. Now, I will point out at 2.30 in the morning, there's not a whole lot of people up. And when you're miners, that's hard work. So you stay in the bed every minute you can. But in the western sky, these two men at 2.30 in the morning saw a ball of fire. It was immense in size, being apparently about as large as the head of a flower barrel, larger than the moon when it was full, and it was a bright glowing red color. Well, amazed at the sight, um, the two individuals decided it was sufficiently wonderful to see such an immense ball of fire hanging on the western horizon. It was the strangest sight either one of them had ever seen. But the object, which had first appeared fairly benign, however unusual its appearance, then began to emit strange beams or rays of light from all around the circumference. Witness said at intervals of a few minutes, there darted forth on every side bright rays like the Straws of a broom, and from the ends of these were sent out sparks like those from a Roman candle. A few minutes of spewing forth these bright rays, the object would again become simply a ball of fire before it would once more emit the, the rays of light. It's intermittent action, and the vehemence with which the rays and sparks started forth was the most wonderful part of the phenomena, according to the reporters. When I say reporters, I mean the two individuals who reported it. They said they were aghast as they watched this incredible sight for about 30 minutes. At one point, they tried to find somebody else to witness the sight, but uh, couldn't locate anybody else who was still awake in their immediate area. They, were, they, they said few people were abroad at the town, and we weren't able to find a gentleman besides uh, 
the two that were named who actually saw it. Now, it was reported um, in the Virginia City, Nevada Territorial Enterprise, May 16, 1869. It was reported in the San Francisco, California Examiner, May 21, 1869. And the Fort Wayne, Indiana Daily Democrat, June 9, 1869. So you got three different newspapers reporting the same story. And they didn't have AP in those days, so they were independent reports. And the witnesses noted the object which had appeared in the west seemed to move toward a nearby mountain called Mount Davidson, still blazing and sputtering uh, sparks and jets of fire. They watched it for about a half an hour before it seemed to slowly settle behind Mount Davidson until it was out of view. Well, the, the movement was slow and steady, not unusually fast or unusually slow, according to the witnesses. It appeared to move with the rest of the heavenly bodies, no faster or no slower, and went down behind the mountain as steadily as would have been the case with the moon itself. And as far as the distance from the observers to the object, it was hard to tell, they said. Impossible to judge as to the distance of the meteor. It appeared near enough to have been in the atmosphere of the Earth. Indeed, it appeared to be but a few miles away, but it may have been a world on fire millions of miles away. They said it was the strangest sight they'd ever seen. And they would have cheerfully bet ten cents that the end of things was at hand. One of the witnesses commented what it was. God only knows, but we're inclined to think it was a star being consumed and wouldn't be surprised to hear that one of the considerable magnitude is missing. Well, the next story I've got comes from August 7th, 1869. Now, on August 21st, 2017, North America was treated to the amazing spectacle of a total solar eclipse. It was the first such eclipse seen by the entire country since 1918. Folks were outside in droves to witness this rare event. And along with the large number of outdoor spectators, the eclipse also brought with it a dramatic increase in UFO sightings. Now, that fact wasn't widely reported by news media, but you have to understand, mainstream media uh, dances to the same tune, all of them. And um, rather than reporting... Their goal now seems to be to get you to go along with what they believe should be the um, the political view of the country. They don't really care about giving you something new anymore. Now, during after this 2017 solar eclipse, the website of the Mutual UFO Network was inundated by reports from people who claimed to have seen, in many cases, photographed one or more UFOs. And part of the reason for more sightings during an eclipse is simply the fact more people are observing the sky for longer periods of time and they're concentrating more fully on what they see. They also have cameras and binoculars and telescopes readily available in preparation for the eclipse. Uh, by contrast, on a normal day, the average person doesn't pay much attention to the sky and rarely looks up. That's something on the ordinary happens to draw their attention to it. And another key is that during an eclipse, the world's top astronomers also have their full attention directed on the event. 
Normally, astronomers might be focused on objects much further away in the cosmos during an eclipse. Uh, they, to some extent, have their sights at least temporarily brought back to Earth, so to speak. And maybe the most important factor by UFO sightings during the solar eclipses is that the eclipse itself, specifically, especially during totality, the moment when the sun's disk is totally obscured by the moon, seems to bring into view objects, especially those near the sun, that wouldn't be otherwise available, uh, easily visible. Now, this is exactly what happened in the summer of 1869 during a North American total solar eclipse event that uh, we're going to talk about. The eclipse went as expected, but what wasn't expected was the discovery of it by astronomers of a number of mysterious unidentified objects seen around the sun at about the time of the totality. August 7, 1869, scientists from around the world gathered at several key locations in North America to uh, witness this solar eclipse, photograph it, and take readings with their various instruments. And as was the case in 2017, as well as other eclipse years, the 1869 event drew a tremendous amount of attention among not just the scientific community, but the general public as well. Some of America's top astronomers gathered at three different sites in Iowa to study the event, as well as in Alaska, Virginia, Dakota Territory, Illinois, and Kentucky. At Otuma, Iowa Observation Station, and one of the scientists gathered at the event, Professor Joseph Zintmayer, noticed something very peculiar about 25 minutes prior to the totality of the solar eclipse. He observed several bright objects crossing from one cusp to the other of the solar crescent. And each object took two seconds to make the crossing. Points were well defined. It must have been miles away from the telescope given their sharpness. The observation point in Shelbyville, Kentucky, astronomer Alvin Graham Clark stated that his attention was called by astronomer Joseph Winlock to small objects crossing the field of the viewfinder in straight lines and supposed by both observers to be meteors. Clark himself observed about 20 of these objects. In Shelbyville, Kentucky, George W. Dean of the U.S. Coast Survey observed soon after the reappearance of the sun, my attention was attracted to bright points of light which were from time to time passing across the field. After observing about 15 or 20, I concluded they passed between the earth and the dark body of the moon. They always fell in the same direction, which was from the apparent upper limb of the moon to the horizon. Their paths were straight lines and parallel to each other. That one seen by Alvin G. Clark Jr., though, through a telescope, was also seen by myself, and they were incandescent bodies, no question about that. Its eyes were equal to the smallest star visible through any telescope, about as large as a tenth or eleventh magnitude star appears to be in the Harvard College Equatorial. As the sunlight increased, these meteors ceased, uh, ceased to be visible. Dean also uh, stated that about ten minutes after the total phase, I observed a faint object pass across the moon in a southwesterly direction. A few minutes, I saw another, which was soon followed by another in the same general direction. Within 15 minutes, I saw 10 of these faint objects pass across the moon. They had the appearance of being meteors, and I'm inclined to believe that's what they were. But let me ask you this. If they were meteors, why were they following straight lines and literally flying in formation? In Falmouth, Kentucky, doing totality, an observer identified as Ms. Murphy saw two meteors. First was traced from a point near the meridian, not far from the zenith toward the southeast. Of course, the second was from the northwest to the southwestern part of the sky. Other sightings of similar objects were reported by Professor Lewis Swift from Mattoon, Illinois. 
Swift was an acclaimed astronomer and renowned comet hunter who discovered 13 comets in his lifetime. The fact that several observers in different locations saw the same thing tends to confirm the objects as having been real. They weren't somebody's imagination. They were definitely not, as uh, some skeptics suggested, local insects or seeds picked up by the wind and blown in front of the telescopes. All the astronomers felt they were something unusual and out of the ordinary. So the question became, were they truly meteors, as most folks suggested, or were they something else? UFO researchers who've studied this case have for many years believed what the astronomers actually saw in 1869 was a fleet of unidentified flying objects that happened to be in the vicinity of the sun and the moon during that total eclipse. Now, George W. Dean got the impression of the UFOs that passed between the Earth and the dark body of the moon. Many as 20 such objects were spotted, moving in straight lines across the moon, all of which seemed to defy the meteor explanation. And there were a number of reports of unusual sightings gathered together in the March 1895 edition of Popper Astronomy magazine. Rush on down to your favorite newsstand and see if they got a copy. Now, August 7th, 1869, also something else happened. Adamstown, Pennsylvania. A strange luminous object came down out of the sky and landed in an empty lot about 200 yards north of the village of Adamstown, Pennsylvania. Now, Adamstown is a borough in Lancaster County, extending into Berks County in Pennsylvania. Population in 1860 was 462 people and three drunks. The controlled landing of this extremely large object was observed by four or five different parties who witnessed from several different vantage points as this bizarre craft settled slowly near the center of the vacant lot. The ship that landed was square near the bottom, and from the square there arose a column about three or four feet in height, about two feet in thickness, and the surface was like burnished silver, which shone brightly in the noonday sun. Specifically, according to one observer, the object glittered like a column of burnished silver. Bright light from the object was almost blinding to the surrounding witnesses. But it seemed to inspire terror rather than admiration, according to the reporter who filed the story for the local newspapers. And then as the witnesses watched in silence, the brightness of the object seemed to gradually fade away. After about ten minutes, the light had completely faded, and the object that had generated the light was simply no longer there. It had vanished. After it disappeared, a number of people visited the spot, but there wasn't a trace of anything unusual to be seen. A newspaper article about this amazing encounter ended up by saying similar objects had been seen in the neighborhood on several occasions during the nighttime, but none before in the daytime, or so bright as this. The land in the immediate vicinity is dry, there being no swamp about, otherwise the phenomenon might be accounted for by uh, being described as possibly swamp gas which was the Army's favorite explanation for many, many years. The observed object, due to its small size and odd shape, seemed to model like a probe or an unmanned drone of some kind. The description sounds amazingly like NASA's Mars Explorer probe, except for the lack of wheels in this case. Uh, since there are no such thing as probes and drones in 1869 that we knew about, its origin had been considered unknown. And the craft did land in plain view and then became bathed in a bright light, after which it simply wasn't there anymore. So you have to wonder how the object's disappearance was accomplished. While the observers were blinded by the bright light, it could have taken off and vanished back into the sky. 
or maybe it transitioned in another state of matter or went to another dimension. Third possibility is that the object cloaked itself, activating a field of invisibility after which it may have departed unseen. The one final theory, it exploded or dissolved either deliberately or accidentally. If the object self-destructed on purpose, maybe this was necessitated by it having landed in the middle of several eyewitnesses uh, who would no doubt soon approach the ship and endeavor to learn its secrets. A newspaper article states that similar objects have been seen at the same area previously, but all the others had arrived under the cloak of darkness. The arrival of the August 14th object during the middle of the day may have been a mistake that resulted in its controllers having to uh, make it self-destruct. Article concludes, we don't know whether the jack-o'-lantern assumes such large proportions or whether it appears midday under a bright sun. Maybe some of our friends versed in the sciences can solve this mystery. Now, the jack-o'-lantern they were referring to was not the Halloween variety of uh, a pumpkin. Rather, the term jack-o'-lantern was used to describe a visual phenomenon, ignis fatus, or foolish fire, known as the will-o'-the-wisp in English folklore. This was a phenomenon causing atmospheric ghost lights, often seen at night, especially over bogs and swamps or marshes. Some believe these strange lights are the result of swamp gas, which has also been used to explain a lot of UFO sightings in more recent times. However, the will-o'-the-wisp, uh, or jack-o'-lantern phenomena, is not typically seen in bright daylight or in dry areas away from swamps. Well, this UFO landing case from 1869 is one of the most fascinating sightings of the 19th century, and one of the, that is totally unlike most of the others reported during this time period. The article about it appears in the August 10, 1869 edition of the Daily Evening Express of Lancaster, Pennsylvania, in the August 16th issue of the Reading Pennsylvania Times. It's also been featured in a lot of books and other publications dealing with very early UFO sightings. Like many other cases that we have talked about and are going to talk about, it remains an enigma to this day. Well, another area where there was a lot of um, strange activity. But not surprised, folks. It's near what we know today as Area 51. At a place called Pyramid Lake in Nevada. Well, there's been a lot of <clears throat> stories told about Area 51. I used to interview people from there on my show. Their internal security force was uh, supposedly known as Yellow Fruit, which had a certain appeal, I think. But 85 years before Area 51 was established at Groom Lake, local Native Americans talked about strange little beings with large heads that abducted humans and took them away and never returned them. These abductions that they talked about took place in a place called Pyramid Lake. That's about 250 miles northwest of the Nellis Air Force Range. And Nellis Range is part of a federal compound, and at the center of that compound is the base known as Area 51, located at a place called Groom Lake. Now, in 1955, the federal government established this, and supposedly it was used to store recovered UFOs for study and reverse engineering. 
Now, while that may seem a bit of a stretch to associate Pyramid Lake with Area 51, it's close enough to make UFO enthusiasts wonder what happened there in 1870, maybe linked to the events associated with Grim Lake. Now, other than some of the strange happenings in New Mexico, Nevada is arguably the U.S. state most associated with UFOs due to the presence in the state of Area 51. And in fact, keep in mind, the government would not even admit it existed until 2013 when they were forced to. During the 1800s, due to the western states being so sparsely populated, Nevada had very few UFO sightings reported by the, the uh, white settlers compared to the highly populated eastern states. In fact, most of the earliest reports of the aliens and UFOs and what have you in Nevada came from the Native American population, most of whom lived in the area of Pyramid Lake. Now, that lake is a remnant of the Great Lake, the hometown of the Listocene area. At that time, Lake Lahontan covered most of northwestern Nevada. Today, it's located in southeastern Washoe County within the Truckee River Basin is about 40 miles from Reno. Lake is uh, 356 feet deep at certain points. It's named Pyramid Lake because uh, it has several pyramid-like formations that just jut out of the water and line the shores. They're called tufa formations by those who allegedly study such things. The largest and best known of these tufa formations is on a whole island. And though it does look like a ruin from some long-abandoned civilization. It's said to be a perfectly natural formation. Now, Pyramid Lake was the home to three different but groups of Native Americans, though they said they, it was reported they were related. The Northern Paiutes, the Owens Valley Paiutes, and the Southern Paiutes. Now, the lake was discovered by settlers in 1844, having been spotted first by John C. Fremont. He's the one that gave the lake its name. From this point forward, the settlers began to pour into the area, disrupting the Paiute's way of life. But apparently, the Paiutes weren't the lake's only residents, uh, according to stories that the natives told. And they talked about two races of beings that dwelt under the waters of Pyramid Lake. The first was a race of what they call mer-beings. The second was a group of small childlike creatures they called water babies. But in spite of the fact they were called water babies, they were not, um, shall we say, friendly, playful entities. They terrified the natives for a very good reason. They were notorious for abducting humans and dragging them under the water's surface. Now, the image of these small, childlike beings with abnormally large heads that appear sudden and abduct humans is right in line with more modern stories of alien abductions. And since a lot of UFOs have been spotted in, in and around bodies of water, it seems possible the Pyramid Lake in 1870 was being used as a base of operations by these mysterious entities. Their proximity to local human settlements was a bonus that allowed them to quickly obtain laboratory specimens for their experiments. Some 
Research even suggested, regardless of their origin, the UFO occupants typically established bases on our planet, uh, both uh, deep underground and under the oceans and seas and lakes and rivers. In ancient fairy lore, beings like these water babies often appeared in uh, students of these fairy legends, which are often eerily similar to UFO stories. Theorized the water babies appeared in the guise of children as a way to entice human children to get close to the water so they might be abducted and taken to their underwater lair. Like many UFO encounters, the water babies are said to surface uh, at night and roam the shore searching for children who come separated from their parents. And although Native Americans often had belief systems centered around visitors from outer space, to our knowledge, the Paiutes never associated the water babies with these star people. But that doesn't remove the possibility they were connected in some way. The Paiutes sometimes threw deformed babies into the lake and believed the water babies with the, the drowned young come back to haunt them. But still, the description of these strange beings and their habit of abducting humans does seem to line up with other alien abduction narratives. It's not known just when the water babies became known to early settlers. But the first to mention them may have been uh, Indian agent Labas. The book The Desert Lake, uh, uh, the story of Nevada's Pyramid Lake by uh, Sessons Wheeler, reproduces a letter from Bass to his superior, acting commissioner of the Office of Indian Affairs. The letter was written January 16, 1870, relates to strange rumors Bass had heard about Paiute superstitions. According to what he wrote, the Indians had superstitious ideas about Pyramid Island. They say their great-grandfathers and grandmothers told them about seeing small Indians who would appear to them at night. Their description was a large head and body and short legs and small feet. They believed this, even though none of them report having ever seen it themselves. Now, there seems to be an obvious link here between these small beings and so-called gray aliens due to the abnormally large heads in proportion to their bodies. Actually, comparing a gray alien to a human baby isn't terribly far off. However, these water babies, as they're called, also displayed uh, behavior, not unlike a reptilian in some stories. And the term reptilian refers to the malevolent alien race rumored to exist by many UFO believers. They're said to be shapeshifters who can take on human form, Though their true physical appearance is closer to that of a scaly reptile in human, uh, a reptile in humanoid form, I guess is the best way to say it. There was one Paiute story that uh, I thought was interesting. It was considered an origin story of the so-called water babies. At an unspecified location near the lake, a woman put her infant on the ground to go gather wood. A serpent-like creature came upon the baby and swallowed it whole and took on its appearance. When the mother came back, uh, she picked up the baby and it swallowed the mother as well. Well, the fear of the water babies uh, has actually extended, extended into the 21st century. David Weatherly wrote a book in 2019 called Silver State Monsters, Cryptids and Legends of Nevada. And that story tells the, that book tells the story of Richard Marino, a Reno native uh, newspaper reporter. I asked one of his co-workers of Paiute descent why she chose to build her home in the nearby settlement of Nixon rather than nearer to the beautiful Pyramid Lake. 
Well, her response, which was given in all seriousness, was she wouldn't dare live near the lake for fear that the water babies would abduct her children. Well, that, uh, that's interesting to note that all the descriptions of these various entities uh, and those of, uh, that you get from UFO witnesses do seem to um, correlate. So let's go to uh, March 22nd, 
originated in the Zanesville, Ohio Herald, published April 5, 1873, and it spread around the country to many other newspapers, including the New York Times. Goes, uh, according to that story, most extraordinary phenomenon was observed near the village of Taylorsville. Uh, Mr. Thomas Inman, a uh, respectable farmer of what was said to be unquestioned truth and veracity, uh, re related the story to the reporter. And his son was also a witness who vouched for what his father said. According to the article, about March 22nd, uh, when the sighting took place, the article continued on. While Mr. Inman and his son were returning to their home from Taylorsville, they saw a light they described as looking like a burning bush pile near the zenith, um, descending rapidly toward the earth. There was a loud roaring noise and then hit the ground a short distance uh, from them, landed in the middle of the road. <clears throat> then the blazing object flickered and flared for a few moments and faded into darkness. <coughs> As a man dressed in a black suit and carrying a lantern got out of it. Now, it's rather significant, I think. Um, we have in 1873 a, an illuminated aircraft descending from the sky, makes a pinpoint controlled landing in a remote area of Ohio. And a well dressed man in black gets out of it carrying some type of portable handheld light with him. After the man got out, the landed object flickered and flared before it faded into darkness. Suggested it either uh, vanished or became cloaked in some fashion. Even more incredible was what Thomas Edmund and his son saw next. The man walked a few paces away and got into what they called a buggy, which in those days was any wheeled land vehicle. Neither one had saw the the buggy before the man got into it. There was no horse attached to it. And no sooner than the man took his seat than it started to run with great velocity down the highway. And it ran down the highway till it got to a deep gully into which it plunged. Um, and at the time it went over the edge, it vanished. Now, 20 years before the first horseless carriage was invented in Germany, a mysterious person gets out of his flying craft and got into what sounds like an ultra-modern automobile, capable of traveling at great velocity without any apparent noise. Even modern automobiles can't do that. Furthermore, the vehicle plunged into a deep gully and vanished. Now, this is certainly a very strange UFO encounter, incorporating three distinct features rivaling any modern UFO sighting. The controlled landing of a craft, a land vehicle capable of great velocity and possibly flight, and ubiquitous men in black. Well, there have been stories coming out of the 1800s about alleged time travelers. And this 1873 story certainly seems to qualify as a possible encounter with somebody from the future who arrived in some sort of time machine that vanished and 
then got into a futuristic land vehicle that had been prearranged for him in which to travel. Even the lantern that he was holding in his hand was very likely not a lantern at all, but some type of flashlight. The witness wouldn't have known how to describe it, falling back on the more familiar term of lantern. So this is clearly a case of truth being stranger than fiction. Not only is this likely the first story to link UFOs with the men in black, at least the first one I've come across, but it also leaves one of the most disturbing suspicions that time travel could possibly have been involved, which goes along with one of the many theories about the men in black. Well, from there, let's go to Fort Scott, Kansas, June 26, 1873. In this particular instance, or at least in this time period, a ground-based observer looking up and seeing an elongated cylindrical cigar-shaped object streaking across the sky would most likely have used terminology which they were most familiar, describing it as a flying serpent or dragon or some other form of supernatural manifestation. Now, of course, such descriptions don't necessarily mean that what they saw was a biological creature, but certainly it's an appropriate analogy. Even in modern UFO uh, encounters, aerial craft is sometimes described as biological terms, like a giant bird-like object. Well, such is the case with two interesting UFO sightings that came from uh, 1873. Folks have studied these cases closely and concluded it's very likely the objects seen were actually metallic aerial craft and not living entities. First one, June 26, 1873, Sunrise. Residents of Fort Scott, Kansas, reported seeing a huge serpent encircling the sun. They first saw the object when the sun was about halfway above the horizon, and it was visible for some few moments. The incident was printed in the local newspaper, the Fort Scott Monitor, June 27, 1873. According to the newspaper, the sightings were reported by two very reliable witnesses. And they were willing to sign sworn statements. They actually saw the flying serpent. It was also reportedly seen by several members of the U.S. Cavalry who were stationed at Fort Scott. A few days earlier, something similar was seen by a farmer named Hardin who lived a few miles east of Bonham, Texas. Serpent-like object appeared in the sky above where Hardin was working. A number of other workers standing uh, in nearby fields saw it as well. And what they saw was definitely unusual. Farmers became seriously frightened, according to the local newspaper. They described what they saw as an enormous serpent seemed to float on a cloud. It seemed to be as large and as long as a telephone pole with a yellow striped color. It seemed to float along without effort. Whatever this thing was, it drifted off toward the east, and as it moved along in the sky, the Serpent seemed to behave just like a real snake. It coiled up and rolled over and dressed its head forward like a snake. I was about to strike. Witnesses stated the flying snake would thrust forward its huge head at or strike it at something, displaying the maneuvers of a genuine snake. Donald Keel, 
wrote about it in his 1950 book, The Flying Saucers Are Real. He argued that the flying saucer over Bonham was actually a flying saucer. He said in broad daylight when a strange, fast-moving object appeared in the sky southwest of town. For a moment, the people of Bonham stared at the thing, not believing their eyes, and the only flying device they didn't know was a drifting balloon. But this thing was huge and speeding so fast, its outlines were almost a blur. Going to Kehoe. The farmers were terrified and hid under their wagons, and those that could fled inside buildings. Only a few people remained outdoors to view the object, circled the town twice before moving off to the east and disappearing. The uh, sighting appeared in the New York Times, but as you might expect, that newspaper poked fun at the witnesses. New York newspaper said to farmers who claimed to see the flying serpent must have been delirious. This is the same newspaper that's losing its audience because it's decided to go woke. New York Times also commented about the flying serpent seen over in the skies over Fort Scott, Kansas. Writer said if people continue to see flying snakes, the nation ought to consider banning the sale of alcoholic drinks. Well, that was done in the 20s and 30s, and how'd that work out? Some years before these two cases, in 1857 and 1858, settlers in Nebraska claimed to have seen a huge flying serpent. The creature was seen hovering in the sky over a steamboat. It appeared to be wavy, slipped in and out of the clouds. It seemed to breathe fire, and streaks of light came out of its sides. Well... Flying objects described as flying serpents have been seen throughout history. Even the Bible mentioned a fiery flying serpent in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 6. Paintings and sculptures of flying serpents have been found among artifacts of our ancient cultures, such as the Chinese, the Maya, and the Aztecs. The feathered serpent god Quetzalcoatl is the most important part of uh, Aztec religious beliefs. The June 1873 incidents remain... Interesting for quite a number of reasons. First, the witnesses seemed believable. Second, the descriptions of both events were similar. In all likelihood, um, what was seen was some kind of advanced flying machine capable of uh, aerial acrobatics. And of course, skeptics argued the stories were made up by sensational-seeking newspaper reporters trying to drive up sales in their newspapers. But the 1873 sightings seem to be something entirely different than the tall tales you have come to expect from the media. They most likely were real events. And on that note, we go to the end of today's show. We'll come back tomorrow and talk about the other early pre-Roswell UFO encounters. Till then, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great evening.